0: Welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. Good morning again. It is good to see everybody. If you would like to turn to Matthew 23, that's where we're going to be. While you're turning there, I've got a question for you. If you had a time machine and you could travel to any period in time, where would you go? Now stop, I see some of you, you're being more holy than me, because immediately when I was thinking of this, I went to the Wild West. I wanted to be a cowboy so bad when I was little, I just couldn't stand it. And that's the first thing that popped in my mind. It's like, I'm going to go back to the Wild West to see the gunfights and the horses and all of that kind of stuff. That was wrong of me, okay? I don't know if it was wrong, but that probably wasn't the answer you came up with. Y'all are better off than I am. Secondly, I went to another worldly ideal. I went to my history mind. It's like, what if I could have been there at the Declaration of Independence? when they signed that. What if I could have been at these amazing moments in history and it's only after I went there that it's like, duh, Jesus' brain, that I came around to like going back to biblical times. Could you imagine if we could go back and sit under the teachings of Jesus in person? What if we had got to be at the Sermon on the Mount and hear Jesus teach? What if we could have seen Jesus heal people and not just see what Jesus did, but see how people reacted as somebody received their sight for the first time in the. they glorified God. And then it hit me. There is only one right answer to time travel. I would go back and I would knock that stupid fruit out of Eve's hand before she got a chance to take a bite. All of these movies about time travel, nobody's ever thought, maybe I should go back and build a fence around the tree. Like, I don't know how that happened. That's kind of a dumb question. It's not something that we really need to worry about. I don't think we're going to time travel. But for about the past 200 years, that question has really brought a lot of creativity to our entertainment. and in books and movies and, and TV shows. The concept of what would happen if we could go back in time has been something that we've been kind of indoctrinated with. And the best movie that goes with this is, you guys know what I'm talking about, is Back to the Future. You guys ever seen that movie? From the 19th best time travel movie ever. Now what I like about the movie is not that he gets to travel through time and he faces these crises. It's that in Back to the Future there is a core concept of cause and effect. It centers around the this teenage boy named Marty McFly and he goes back and what he realizes is that even though he's in the past everything that he changes about the fa- past has an effect on the present or on at that time the future. And in the movie the biggest effect that he had is he fell out of a tree and his teenage mom saw him and thought he was so cute not knowing that he was from the future and she fell out of love with his dad. And now Marty McFly spends this whole movie trying to get his parents back together because here's the cause. If his parents don't Fall in love as teenagers, they don't get married. If they don't get married, they don't have kids. And Marty McFly is looking at could I have possibly caused myself not to exist? Now that is all, you know, science fiction, it doesn't matter. But what we can look at is we can look at the concept of cause and effect. We can look at the past and we can see things that happened and we can see the effects of it on our lives today. But maybe more importantly, we can assess that what we do today, our actions, are going to have effects on the future. We've been in a series called Through the Motions, and Jesus is in this banter with the religious elites, and and he is arguing kind of their dead religion. They said they served God, but it was really just a bunch of actions and a lot of going through the motions, and Jesus Christ is arguing for a living faith. And what we're going to look at today is Jesus is going to lay out to these Pharisees and these Sadducees and these scribes, he's going to lay out to them what are the effects of a dead religion. What are the effects of not living a living faith? And so we're going to read that in chapter 12. Twenty-three. Just a few verses this morning, starting at verse 13. This is Jesus speaking. He says, But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye that are entering to go in. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you devour widows' houses, and for the pretense make long prayer. Therefore you shall receive the greater damnation. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you can pass sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he is made, you make him twofold more a child of hell than yourselves. All right, so we need to talk about the Scripture. We're only going to do a few verses because there is a lot here this morning. First off, we need to talk about what is a woe. Like in this, this is actually called the eight woes of Jesus or the eight woes of the Pharisee. There's eight of them recorded in Matthew. They're recorded in the other Gospels as well. What is a woe? Now, once again, we're not in Wild West mind. It's not what you yell when you're riding a horse, right? A woe, that's not it either. A woe is a state of great suffering or uh, despair, a state of great suffering or despair. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's basically saying great suffering and despair are on you, Pharisees. Now we may kind of look at this like a curse and sometimes I think that's how we read this. Like Jesus stands up, he's had enough of the Pharisees and he points his finger at them angrily and says, woe unto you. And it's like, like he's pronouncing this curse on the Pharisees. But it's actually a little bit different. It's actually a little bit different than what we might think. Jesus is simply enlightening them about the the state that they are in in their dead religion. And that brings us to our first take-home truth. It's like this, that dead religion pulls us into a state of great suffering. Dead religion pulls us into a state of great suffering. That's what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees here. Now, we kind of look at this like Jesus is judging the Pharisees, like like he's making the final cause, like, all right, you went too far, now I'm putting the state of great suffering on you. But what he's actually doing is he's telling the scribes and Pharisees that your actions have this effect on you. You may not even know it, but these actions have this effect on you, and you are currently living in a state of great suffering. Prior to the 1960s, should a man commit a crime that he was sentenced to death for, as he was moved around the prison, prison guards would follow before and after him, and they would yell, "'Dead man walking.'" dead man walking here. And that was served as a warning to the people around this convicted man that this is a bad guy. He is on death row. And it was also an announcement of the state of this man's condition. He's not yet, um, he, he's awaiting execution. Now, they weren't prescribing to him a punishment. That had already been done when he was convicted by a jury. And the judge levied the punishment on him. He, the judge told him this is your fate. This is your punishment for your crimes. They also were not carrying out the punishment when they yelled that. This was just simply an announcement of what's going on with this man. And that's what Jesus is doing with the Pharisee, Pharisees here. He's announcing that the effect of your dead religion, the effect of your focus on actions and motions instead of your focus on God, is bringing you into this great state of suffering. Now, the Pharisees probably would have argued this, they, they, they wouldn't have agreed with this. The Pharisees, me? Do I look like I'm suffering? Look at my robes with the big borders. Look, look at how holy I am. You remember last week, I'm the most humble of all that ever humbled. Like they would have argued that they were in a state of suffering. They would argue that their life was not good. They would have argued that they are very close to God. But Jesus, of course, who sees their heart and knows all and is perfect in every way, he looks at them and says, no, you don't even know it, but you are in a state of great suffering. Now how can you be in a state of great suffering and not know it? You ever stub your toe? That is a state of great suffering. And you know it, and everybody else in the house knows it because you yell some things, and all, all holy things, of course. You know, oh goodness, <laughs> you, know, you don't yell anything like that. It's a state of great suffering, and you know it. But these Pharisees, they seem to be blind to their state of great suffering. So, so why is it that they're blind? What makes us blind? Well, blindness can be for a bunch of different reasons, but maybe the most common cause for blindness is when something covers your sight, when something is in the way of you seeing completely. And I think maybe more of the blindness the Pharisees and not so much that they can't see that they're stumbling around but maybe they have blinders on like a horse some of you guys grew up on farms you have horses that wore blinders on their halters what's the purpose of that The purpose of that is to narrow the vision of a horse, especially if you're going through a place where they might get distracted. You put these cups on either side of the horse's eyes where it can't see left or right, and all it can focus on is what's straight in front of it. And this is what dead religion does to you and me, and this is what dead religion did to the Pharisees, is it puts these blinders on us where we focus only on actions, where we focus only on motions, but it blinds us to things like our own hypocrisy, our problems. It keeps us from looking at ourselves and asking, Does God require this of me? And so these Pharisees walked around with blinders, unable to see the state they were in because they were so focused on themselves. See, if I focus on my own title, I miss my need for Christ. If I focus on my own goodness, I don't get to see His goodness or the need for it. If I focus on my actions, if I focus on going through the motions, if I focus on just doing the right things, being a good church person, if I focus on those, I miss my need for Jesus Christ because I'm so blinded by these things that pull me away from him. And so the Pharisees and possibly a great number of Christians walk around with these blinders, blind to their own condition, blind to the state that we walk around in. Now, Jesus tells them that they're in a great state of suffering in a great state of sorrow. But he doesn't really tell us why immediately. But then he goes on later and he's going to give us a verse that says, What are they missing? Why are they in this position of distress? They're missing something important because they're blinding. And Jesus tells us this. It's it's very simply the kingdom. The kingdom. If you, if you read in verse thirteen, he says, "You have locked yourself, or you have shut up the kingdom against yourself and against others." And so that brings us to our second take-home truth: is that living a dead religion shuts and locks the doors of God's kingdom. Living in a dead religion shuts and locks the doors of God's kingdom. Going through the motions, focusing on actions, keeping our heart on doing the right things instead of on Christ, shuts the door. Shuts and locks the doors to God's kingdom. Now, this brings up a pretty complex topic, and it's something we could spend weeks on. So I'm going to try to cover it just a little bit. What is the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is talking about here? What is the kingdom of heaven? And, and when you hear the word heaven, what do you think of? It's that place that we just sang about, like we're going to go and it's going to be streets of gold and it's going to be awesome. I'll be present in Jesus. I love Miss Gail's special this morning. Find Jesus and that's where I'll be. That's what we think of when we think of heaven. But the kingdom of heaven is a little bit deeper than that. We need to celebrate heaven, the physical or the place where our souls reside when we die, versus the kingdom of heaven that is pronounced in Scripture again and again and again. The kingdom of heaven is simply a spiritual kingdom. A kingdom is only an area of rule or reign the king or a ruler has over. And so this is the area of rule or reign of heaven or of God. As a matter of fact, Matthew is the only person who records these scriptures as the kingdom of heaven. The other writers call it the kingdom of God. And that's probably because Matthew, trying to make sure not to use God's name in vain, was... um, hesitant to call it the kingdom of God. So he he recorded it as the kingdom of heaven, but the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God are the same thing. So we have this spiritual kingdom that Jesus is talking about. He tells us it's a spiritual kingdom because at his trial, when they ask him, yeah, what are you the ruler over? He says, my kingdom is not of this world. Otherwise, my followers would be in here trying to break me out. We know it's a spiritual kingdom and we know that it is a present kingdom because both Jesus and John the Baptist preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, meaning drawing near. So we have the spiritual kingdom that is on no map in which God or Jesus Christ is the ruler. And that's what Jesus is saying. You're shutting people out of allowing God to rule in their lives, for God to be the king of their hearts, you might even say. This is what he accuses the Pharisees of. <clears throat> this kingdom is on no map and it's also a little bit different than any other kingdom. It seems to be very um, very opposite the world around us. In the world around us, if someone treats you harshly, you treat them harshly back. But in the kingdom of God, he says, pray for those that despitefully use those. Love those who hate you. In the kingdom of heaven, we learned last week that servants, the lowest of the low, are the highest exalted in the kingdom of heaven. It seems to be completely reversed from everything that we have learned about the world around us now first Peter tells us that we live in this kingdom. First Peter tells us that in the world you and I live in, for you and I, that's Arkansas, that's America, that's, that's the 2020 you know, year that we've had to deal with. Peter puts it this way, you're in exile. You, you live there, but that's not where you belong because for us, if you're a follower of Christ, your home is the kingdom of heaven. Those who rule you are not the, the world rulers. Those who rule us are, the spiritual, are, are Jesus. The spiritual kingdom rules us. God has reign in our life. And so this is what Jesus says is this kingdom where God is coming to rule and people are going to enter into allowing God to rule their life. He says this to the Pharisees to the most religious of the religious, the most elite of the elite. He says, you're standing in the way. You're closing the door and locking it and not allowing people in. If you think of it this way, a door kind of has two ways, and the Pharisees are not the door. A, A door can be one of two things. A door can be an entryway. You open that door and it allows you access to a place. If you close that door, it becomes a barricade. It becomes a barrier, and nobody can get in. And so Jesus is telling the Pharisees here, he said, you're standing in front of the door. You're not allowing people to come to me. You're not allowing people to come to God. And your job should have been to show people the door. Your job should have been to be the greeter, like through here. This is the way to God. Jesus Christ calls himself the door. Jesus Christ should have been the answer. They should have said, Jesus Christ is the Messiah. This is how you get to God. He said, but instead... You stand in front of me and you block the people from getting to me and you block them from the kingdom of God that God is setting up. Now obviously, obviously for them, it's very easy. These are the people that are going to be responsible for crucifying Christ. These are the people that are going to be responsible for trying to sway people's opinions away from Jesus. They're going to call him a heretic. They're going to make him an outcast in the world. But for us as Christians, we can do the exact same thing. We can be one of two things. We can be the people that stand and we point people to the door and say, there is the open entryway. There is Jesus Christ. That is how you get into the kingdom of God. That is how you allow God to rule in your life. But unfortunately, many, many Christians make themselves barriers to the kingdom of God. We stand up and say, you can get to God, but here are the rules that you must get there. Make sure you go through this set of rites before you actually get to God. And we put our focus, like the Pharisees, on many things, denominations, traditions, these man. And made rules that we have and we say this is what you must do to get to God. And we've seen this again and again and again in this lesson that dead religion focuses on the wrong things and keeps people from Jesus Christ. And you might sit here and say, Brian, that's not us. Not here at Ramsey Heights. We are a Bible-believing, Jesus-preaching church. There's no way we could be a, par- a barrier for people to get to Jesus. But I want to remind you that the Pharisees were Bible-believing, God-preaching people. And yet they just let their focus be tweaked just a little bit. And it kept people from coming to Christ. It kept them from entering the kingdom of God. Jesus gives them this example. He says, you Pharisees, he said, you travel the world to make one proselyte. That's a convert. That's one person that they pull into Judaism. He said, you will go all over the place, across ships, across land, and you will seek for people, and you will try to get them to join you. You will try to get them to come be with you, whether that's pulling them across denominations in Judaism, whether that's pulling somebody out of a different religion into Judaism, said you celebrate this you work so hard at it we call that evangelism for us isn't that what we do isn't that what our Operation Christmas Child is about we travel the world or we send money or we send people across the world trying to pull people to Christianity trying to pull people to Christ but this is what Jesus says to them He says, but when you bring them in, when you convert them, you make them twice twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. You make them twice as much a child of hell as themselves." And it might be kind of crazy. How do you say that? How do you convert someone to a religion that's supposed to focus and serve God? How do you pull them into Judaism? How do you pull them into Christianity and make them twice as much a child of hell as they once were? And that brings us to our third take-home truth. Pulling people into a dead religion pulls them farther from God. Pulling people into a dead religion pulls them farther from God. Now, I'll be honest with you, I've struggled with this, this statement. This is a very harsh statement from Jesus this week. How is this possible that something that religious leaders are doing actually pulls people away from God? Even even if you do bring people into the church um, for the wrong reasons, they're at least hearing the Bible but, but Jesus says this, It says you're putting a barrier up, you're making them twice as much child of hell as they were. And I think it comes down to this, after I've thought about this and studied this week, it really comes down to one thing, is that when we pull people into a dead religion and we teach them actions, and we teach them motions, and we teach them rules, what we do is we make people self-sufficient on themselves. Or we make them think that they're self-sufficient on themselves. If you want to get to God, you must act a certain way. If you want to get to know Christ, you must do certain things. And what we end up doing is instead of focusing on what God did to get to us, we focus on what we must do to get to God. And we train people, we train people to think that they must do certain things to make God happy. See, a dead religion will always mimic a door to the kingdom. It always looks exactly the same way. It looks like we're doing things to get people to God, but our focus is off. Isn't that the problem with the Pharisees? They stand there and they look like the teachers, they look like they're serving God, they look like, hey, if I join them, I'll get closer to God, but their actions and their dead religion pull people away. So a lot of times we do this and we make people self-sufficient on themselves. And I truly believe with all my heart, the hardest person to lead to Christ is someone who thinks they've already figured out a way to Him. The hardest person to lead to Christ is someone who thinks they've already found a way to them or to him. So we've got to be very careful about how we lead people to Christ. I read something this week that, that really caught my attention, and I thought it was very profound. It said, what if Satan had his way completely in the world? What, what if he had it all his way, and he could uh, every person in the world acted the same way? How would he have them to act? Now, if you look around at the world today, you probably think, I know how they would act they're doing it. But this was a profound thought. It said, if Satan had his way, every person in the world would live a moral and upright life. And every Sunday, these people would go and be devoted to a church that did not preach Jesus Christ. So that would be Satan's number one plan. And if you look across the world, doesn't that make complete sense? How many religions are there that we know, because they're not of God, they have to be from Satan... Where people act morally, where they follow rules. What about Hinduism where there's con- this concept of good and bad. What about um, Islam where they feel like they're trying to get to heaven just like we are by serving Allah. Satan does not have a problem with people worshiping. Satan does not have a problem with people living moral lives. Satan has a problem with people getting to Jesus. And in Christian culture for the past 2,000 years and even today for Christian culture this has been something that, G- uh, that Satan has brought into our churches. See Satan has always been a Very convincing counterfeit. He's always been good at acting like something he's not. And he's counterfeiting ways for people to think that they make it to God to keep them from getting to Him. About 60 years after Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, a painting came available of his wife, Mary Todd Lincoln. And Mary Todd Lincoln is maybe one of the most famous um, first ladies, probably because she was married to one of the most famous presidents. And this came about probably in the, in the mid-1920s. This painting of Mary Todd Lincoln, and on it she was wearing a brooch with Abraham Lincoln, and at the bottom it was signed by a very famous artist. came to light. It was one of those attic finds that somebody found. And the owner of this, as he did some research on it, and he traced it back, he realized something about this painting. That this painting of Mary Todd Lincoln, was actually commissioned by her to a famous artist as a gift to Abraham Lincoln. However, he was assassinated before the painting was given to him. Now that makes this painting very valuable. It's a gift to a president, it's a gift to one of the most famous presidents, and it's tied to one of the most prolific events in U.S. history. It's tied to the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. And so after this, the owner of this sold it to the Lincoln family, modern-day Lincoln family, for buku's of money thousands if not millions of dollars, sold this painting that was supposed to be of Mary Todd Lincoln. It was supposed to be a gift to Abraham Lincoln. They kept it for a while in their private archives and then they put it in the presidential library. It ended up being in the uh, governor's house of Illinois, hanging in a place of, of you know, great prestige. Look at this painting, the history that's behind it. It wasn't until the mid-90s that somebody looked at it really close and they realized that the brooch with Abraham Lincoln on it and the signature at the bottom was a fake. For decades, this picture had been hung and bought and sold for thousands and thousands of dollars. It had absolutely no value. It was only a very convincing counterfeit. That's the same way with dead religion. It's a very convincing counterfeit that makes people think that it's valuable, that makes people to think that it's to be desired, but it's actually useless. It just mimics what God actually has for us. So this is where we come to. When we pull someone into a dead religion, we're focusing on the wrong things. We're teaching them how to be holy, what they must do to get God. We're pulling them farther from God because we make them think they're self sufficient We make them think they found another way to God that is not through Christ. And this is the danger of going through the motions. This is the danger of focusing too much on the right actions, is that when we do this, When we do this, when we focus on the wrong things, the people that are watching us may think, that's all I have to do to be a Christian. All that person does is go to church and say a few certain words, and so that's what it means to be a Christian. And when we pull them and when we witness to them, that's what they have in their mind, that this is what it takes to follow God. People need to see in us a living faith that overflows us at every moment, because the truth of it is, talking about cause and effect, Our actions may lead someone to believe that all there is to following Christ is acting the right way. And that is not biblical. That's not what God has called us to do. God has called us to total devotion to Him. In the Bible it says that we have been bought with a price. Jesus Christ bought us. He owns us. Everything about us belongs to Him. But when we don't live with it, that's the witness that we put off and that's the example that we put off. The Bible speaks of a judgment day. And on this judgment day, every one of us will stand before God. We're gonna stand in front of him and all of our deeds are gonna be drug out. Every mistake that we made, every time we misinterpreted the Bible, every time we said something wrong, every time we didn't treat someone with absolute perfect love. And we're gonna stand in front of a holy God, a perfect God, and we're gonna have to look at ourselves in a mirror and say, this is all the filthiness and the nastiness in my life. The Bible speaks very clearly about this. But there's good news for this. I'll speak for myself. I hope you guys can speak for you. Is that in that moment when the filth of our lives is evident, and in that moment when the punishment should be evident, that sitting on the right hand of God is Jesus Christ. And he sits there, and Jesus Christ is there, and he says, this is my child. And when the righteous judge looks at us, he doesn't see our filth and our dirtiness. He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that's what allows us to spend eternity with him. But there's a, a sad thought to think with that that there's another category of people who may not be like me and may not be like hopefully what I hope that each of you is, is a true follower of Christ. That they're going to stand before God and all of the filth of their life is going to be drawn out and they're not covered by the righteousness of Jesus Christ because they did not accept Him as their Savior. Those two options make relative sense to us as church people. You either accept God and you go to heaven, or you don't and you go to hell. That's something that we've all been trained of. But did you know the Bible speaks of a third category? Or maybe I should say a third subcategory? Jesus tells about in that time that there's gonna be a conversation between him and some people where they're gonna sit there and they're gonna say, Jesus, didn't I teach in your name? Didn't I do all of these actions? Didn't didn't I serve you in everything that I did? Didn't I live a good life the way that your Bible tells me to? And it's going to be pastors, and it's going to be deacons, and it's going to be Sunday school teachers, and it's going to be people who never miss a Sunday of church are going to stand there and they're going to argue with Jesus. And you know what Jesus says about them? He says, in that day I'm going to reply, depart from me, ye who commit iniquity, for I never knew you. See, what this scripture is laying out for Je- what Jesus is talking about in this scripture when he talks about that moment in time is he talks about people that were drawn into a dead religion, people who were pulled into the thought that actions make me a Christian, not my faith in Jesus Christ, that, if, that churches had drawn these people to this. This is why it is so important for us to keep our focus correct. As a church, as we've gone through motions, this is why it's so important. I don't want to be responsible for somebody coming to this church for a year or five years or ten years and thinking, I must act a certain way to please God, and hearing those words on the last day. We have to focus on the right things, not pulling people to ourselves, not pulling people to our church, not even pulling people to our denomination, but pulling people to Christ first. Listen, we do not work for the kingdom of Ramsey Heights. We do not work for the kingdom of the Baptists. You and I are citizens of, and we belong to, the kingdom of heaven. And everything that we should do should first be phrased to the question, does this pull people closer to the kingdom of God? Can I have the musicians, please? So I want to ask a question this morning as we finish this message. Number one, number one, have you put your faith in the wrong place? Churches across America are meeting at this moment, and they're full of people who have put their faith in being a church member. They've put their faith in doing the right things. They've put their faith in the fact that they were baptized, but they've never truly put their faith in whether or not they belong to Jesus Christ. If that's you this morning, I would like to just ask you to correct that. Not for me, but for you. But secondly, I want to ask us as a church to look in a mirror what do we put off when we go to work and what do we put off when people come here? Is our focus on the kingdom of heaven or is our focus on other things?